In the book, Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, Annalee Newitt tells the story of a species that was too successful for its own good. A species so well adapted, it was able to spread across the face of the globe, exploiting the natural resources to multiply exponentially. And in its success, it polluted the world so completely that most of the species on Earth were finally extinguished. So completely that the Earth's atmosphere was changed forever. So completely that the species itself was almost wiped out. That species, of course, is blue-green algae. The sad story of blue-green algae played out about two and a half billion years ago. At that time, the Earth had a methane-based atmosphere, and blue-green algae loved methane. It took it in from the air, and it expelled oxygen in its place. And it was so successful in this strategy that it covered the face of the Earth, draining methane from its surroundings and eventually suffocating most of the methane-breathing life on Earth. And in its place came oxygen-breathing life for the last couple of billion years or so. This mass extinction is just one of five that Newitz talks about as they look toward a sixth mass extinction that many believe is just beginning. Another devastating event that will reshape the world as we know it. Newitz doesn't downplay the tragedy. They feel it as acutely as many of us do. But that tragedy is not the subject of the book. The book is about what happens after. I found it incredibly hopeful, which might sound strange to say about a book that takes for granted that we are inevitably headed toward a global catastrophe that will wipe out most of life on the planet. And I realize that's probably not the way to start a homecoming Sunday sermon (laughs) with the end of most of life on Earth. But even though Newitz believes in that, and I do too, for them it's just a starting place. Global cataclysm is a jumping off point for exploring what's next, how life will continue when it all ends. Newitz writes, a few years ago I set out to write a book about how we are all doomed. I immersed myself in the scientific literature on mass extinction, but soon I discovered something I didn't expect. A single, bright, narrative thread that ran through every story of death. That thread was survival. This book grabbed me because while I've heard a lot of talk about our ecological crisis in terms of what's causing it and in terms of what may happen and is happening now, I've never heard anyone talk about what comes after. If the worst comes, what then? What do we do after the world ends? In some ways, that's our question for this month at Bethany. What do we do after the world ends? Or to put it in a little more positive light, how do we live in a new world? 
That's a big question, an intimidating one maybe, but it's not really an unusual one for us, I think. We don't have to go back billions of years to know that the world is always ending. I at least have lots of examples of it. When my grandfather died when I was in kindergarten and I learned that people that I love could go away and not come back. When we moved in the third grade and I lost my school and my church and my friends and I had to start all over again. When I fell in love with Rochelle and all my plans and priorities changed. When I dropped out of voice school and had no idea what was next. In my first year of ministry, when I woke in the middle of most nights wondering if I was on the right path and I would sit in my office, close the door and sing to myself, I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me over and over again. When we were told that our daughter was going to die before her birth, and when she didn't, and instead everything else in our life died and was reborn, when it happened again after she started to talk, and again when she started to walk, when I realized this week that a year from now she'll be starting kindergarten, and then basically the next day she'll graduate high school and leave us forever. (laughs) My world is constantly ending coming crashing down around me, everything I know and love and depend on passing away all the time. And yet, so far, I continue. The world ends and I'm here left to ask, what's next? Maybe you've been there too. And the fact that it happens over and over again, the fact that we're on our sixth mass extinction, it doesn't make it less tragic. It doesn't dull the sense of pain or of urgency to do everything we can in this moment to save this world. The fact that we can imagine the other side of global or personal catastrophe doesn't make them less catastrophic. But the fact that it happens again and again does mean, I think, that it's worth, it's worth me learning how to ask the question, what will I do after the world ends? When it all comes crashing down around me, what's next? I've heard this story of Noah told with the emphasis on what causes the flood, on the wickedness of humanity and the need for a cosmic reset. And I've heard it told with the emphasis on what happens as a result, that fairy tale of all Earth's animals being gathered into one boat. But until reading this book about extinction, I had never considered telling it with an emphasis on what comes after. I had never considered telling this as the story of people facing the end of the world and then coming out on the other side to figure out a new way. That's what it is. That's what happens after the wickedness of humanity and the cosmic reset, after the cute animals nestled nestled in a boat together. After the end of the world, Noah and his family step out of the ark back onto dry land and ask themselves, what's next? And I think I can be forgiven for not thinking of of the story from that perspective, because not that much happens. (coughs) 
after, I mean, all of human history, but other than that, after they get out and God makes these promises that Evan read, Noah plants a vineyard, gets drunk, curses one of his kids, and then 350 years go by and he dies. Not great. But that's all we get. And then all that's, all that's next is a genealogy. One of those long, dull lists of names that we know in the Bible. So-and-so begat so-and-so. I considered making Evan read it as our scripture this morning, but that felt too much like hazing our student pastor in his first week. (laughs) After all this drama, the end of the world and a new beginning, the story gets so boring. Listen to this. These are the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Children were born to them after the flood. The descendants of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Savan, Tubal, Meshech, Tiras. You get the point. But it keeps going for 30 more verses with that I promise not to read. Just a long list of names spanning generations, stretching on and on and on after all of that destruction, running through that story of death. Just this reminder children were born to them after the flood. After all that destruction, just this line that keeps going and going, the thread of survival running right through past the end. And once I found it, I looked back, because I remembered kind of vaguely from seminary, being, Genesis being full of these boring genealogies, right? Sure enough, it is. But when I look back this time, I notice something new, that these genealogies, most of them, are strategically placed in the story. They tend to come just after the world has ended for one or more people. They tend to come after death or destruction or exile, like when Adam and Eve have to leave everything they have known and make a life outside the garden. The very next part is about who their kids are. And when one of those kids, Cain, is banished even further away, east of Eden, the next part is a genealogy of him, the continuation of his line. And then there's Noah, and after Noah, the Tower of Babel, where all the people are scattered and human civilization is decimated again, and the very next chapter is a boring list of names that keep going and going and going. The story of Genesis is a story of the world ending and continuing over and over again. And there's another thread that runs through all of those stories, through all of Genesis, through all of the Bible. The story of Genesis is the story of God promising, promising this is not the end when the first couple are banished from Eden, even God's curse contains the promise of continued life. When Cain gets led away, Cain who murdered his brother, God marks him so that he will be safe, so that he can't be killed. God promises Noah that all flesh won't be wiped out with a flood. God promises Sarah that she will have a child in her old age. God promises Abraham his descendants will be like the stars. God promises Hagar to make a great nation from her baby. God promises Jacob 
his children will be as abundant as dust. When the people are enslaved in Egypt, when they're exiled in Babylon, when they're suffering under Roman occupation, when Jesus is killed, when Jesus ascends, when the church is being persecuted and the temple has been destroyed and it seems like the whole thing is coming crashing down, God keeps promising this is not the end. fun of being inside. The world is always ending, and the world is always continuing. We don't have to go back to the mythological time of Genesis to know that. My world is always continuing. When I learned to tell the stories of the people I had lost and to make memories with the people who will lose me, when I made a new life in a new home again and again and again. When Rochelle and I moved from the world-ending intensity of new high school love into the death-defying tenacity of commitment and marriage. When I was called into ministry when I figured out what I was doing at least enough to sleep through the night, when we master each new stage of Nola's development just before she changes again. Okay, not master, but survive. We survive. All month we're talking about finding new ways to survive, new ways to live and grow and thrive when the ways that we've used no longer work. What do we do when we're facing the end of the world? or we've just come through it. Maybe some of you are facing the end of the world, or you've just come through it. What do you do if right now, as you sit there, you are biting your cheek and holding back tears because it feels like it is all coming crashing down around you? I've been there over and over. Hear the promise. This is not the end. Hold to the bright thread that God has been weaving through existence for at least the last two and a half billion years and through your own years. The thread of survival, the thread of continuity, the thread of new life that stretches on through the other side of death.